summarizing the uh, Bhagavad Gita up to where we've been. And so the first two slokas I, I told you that he wants to get our interest, so he tells Arjuna that this has already been taught by the rishis and the scriptures, etc. And then in the fifth and sixth sloka, he says, I'm going to briefly tell you what that Shetra is, because he could go on and on for pages. So very briefly, he said, the great elements, the ego, the unmanifest, the buddhi, buddhi means the intellect. And then he says, the ten sense organs, that means the, the five sense organs of activity and the five sense organs of knowledge, they make ten, ten sense organs as well as the objects of the senses, which is sound and sights and uh, smells and tastes and touches. Those are the objects of the senses. They're all Shetra. The whole thing, according to Krishna, is Shetra, including the ego and the intellect. It's all Shetra. And as well as each advesha, desires and hatreds, sukha, dukkha, happiness and sorrow, samgata, not only the body, but the whole collection of the body, mind, senses, and intellect and ego. That's called the Samgata. This whole collection of what I think I am. Because we don't only think we're this body. We think we... We refer to this body and our minds and our senses either I am fat or my body has a pain. We Sometimes we think of our, the body as mine. My mind is very restless today, as though we owned it. It's either me or mine. Sometimes it switches. But in either case, it's, it's never Shetra, because we're either identified with it as I, or we're identified with it as mine. I and mine. Each of the... All of that, etat Shetram Samasena, that briefly is the Shetra, along with its modifications. So then we said, starting at 7 through 11, are all the jnana sadhanas. If you want to get this knowledge of what is the Kshetra and who is the Kshetranya, you have to be able to discriminate. The mind has to be made pure. In order to do that, to get that jnana, these are the qualities that Krishna says. Without this, it's just intellectual you will not be able to get the mind pure enough to be able to know this so that it sinks deep into your own experience so that it's not merely just an intellectual appreciation of the teaching. So that's humility, control of the senses. I'll just read it. Humility, unostentatiousness, nonviolence, putting up with the pairs of opposites, not being a hypocrite, sitting close to a teacher, having purity outside and inside. Persistence means firmness in this spiritual pursuit. Atma vinigraha means controlling yourself, not just doing whatever you want. And then, you have to develop some detachment to the objects of the senses. There's basically two ways to get vairagya. This dispassion to the objects. There's two ways. One is called dukkadosha anadarshana, seeing the defect. The defect in all of the objects of the senses is that 
they have a beginning and they have an end. That's the defect. They do bring happiness. When you get that ice cream, the mind, you get a moment of happiness. But it's not bliss because antavanta, it has a beginning, it has an end. And that's called the dukkha yoni that even the happiness has within it the source of suffering because it has to come to an end. That's the defect in every object of desire. It has a beginning and it has an end. And even if it lasts your whole life, you'll have to give it up at death. It'll come to an end. When you see the defect that it can't possibly bring lasting, everlasting, infinite happiness, and that's what we really want, then we can begin to have some dispassion towards those objects. Let other people run after that, that's fine. But what I want is something different. And, and I realize that those things can't possibly bring me the happiness that I want. And this is supposed to bring some dispassion, some detachment. It hasn't worked too well for me. I'm just telling you this is one way to see the defect. But because even though it's temporary, so what? It's the best we got. Let's get a little happy. Let's go for a meal. Yeah, I know it's going to end, but I love that Chinese food. So even though we know that there's a defect in it, Nevertheless, hey, grow up. What do you want? What do you mean everlasting? If you get a little happiness, you're lucky in this life. So we all kind of feel, yeah, yeah, it's going to come to an end, but I'll take what I can get. So this is kind of, so that way of seeing the defect in the thing may not be that helpful. Shankara and Gaudapada tell us another way. It's not just seeing the defect in it. When you see that the thing that you want is not real, then the desire to get it will become less or non-existent. Shankara gives the example, I, I think I told you this in the previous, if you see a mirage, I want that water, and you're running towards it, at some point you realize, oh, it's only a mirage, there's no water. If you still keep running after it, it's only because you're an idiot. You know there's no water there, will you still keep running? When you know there's absolutely no happiness in any object because those objects don't even <coughs> exist, then you should lose interest in it. One is called seeing the defect in the object, and the other is falsifying the object. Abhasakritya making the object just an abasa, an appearance. It's only an appearance. It has no reality. There's no happiness at all, not a drop in it. The only happiness that really exists is in my own self. When, we, when the mind feels like that towards the object, it loses interest. The very nature of the mind is that it wants happiness. It wants happiness but it's convinced the happiness is out there. When it becomes convinced there's no happiness out there by either seeing the defect that it has a beginning and an end or the defect that it doesn't even exist, it's just an appearance. It comes and goes, it can't be real. 
then the mind says, then where is the happiness? And it begins to look, and the teacher says, the happiness that you're looking for is not out there. It resides within your own self. Then the spiritual path, then the spiritual journey begins. The spiritual journey, I'm sorry to tell everybody, is a lonely journey. You can't take your friends on this journey. You can't take any baggage. You can't take any possessions. You can't take your friends. And in the end, you'll even have to leave behind this ego. It's a lonely journey, the spiritual journey. You have to walk it by yourself. But the result is infinite bliss, fearlessness, total contentment, freedom with no limitation at all. That's the fruit of this path. That's the promised fruit called mukti, where you abide in your own true nature. So for those people who have this indriyarteshu varagyam, they're able to turn away from the normal pursuits that other people are pursuing. If you don't see the defect in it, you'll keep running after it. You have to be convinced that it can't possibly bring you what you really want. Then there's a chance the mind will turn away from those things. Indriyarteshu varagyam. Seeing the defect in birth and death, old age and disease. Asaktir, being unattached. Anabhisvangaha, without extreme identification with the children, with the spouse and with the house. He mentions three things, putra, dara, griha. The, the three most things human beings are most attached to are their children, their spouse, wife or husband, and their house. My house, my wife, my children. If I had to give up all my money to save my wife and children, I'd do it. If, even if I had to give up my house, they're the first two. After the wife and the children, I have to have a place where to put these people, so I need a house. So Krishna mentions putra dara the most things that we're most attached to, to somehow, to some degree, lessen the identification. Abhinishvangaha means identifying with them, that when they do good, I feel good. When they're sick, I'm sick. When the house is burning, I'm burning. That business, he has to thin it out. Abhinishvangaha without extreme identification with the putra, the child, dara, the wife, graha, the house. Nityam cha samachittatvam nitya nitya nishta nishtupapadishu. Always having equanimity of mind, whether the good things happen or the bad things happen. Maicha nanya yogena joining your mind to me unswervingly, not just during the Vedanta class, not just on Fridays, not just during the Kirtan, Nitya, while everything is going on in your life, 
the mind is on that. While it's going on, it's possible to do that. While you're doing all your stuff, talking to your friends, eating your food, the mind can be on that. It can be joined to that. There is a way to lead a spiritual life where every activity, the mind is still rooted in that. That's called mayi-cha-ananya-yogina, joining your mind to me, ananya. The word ananya means that it's not Sunday mornings, 9 to 10, or when you go to the, the ashram. Always, that's what's required. Bhakti-ravibhicharani, with a devotion that doesn't waver, avibhicharani, just like when we love our wife, even when you're at work, that love doesn't stop. If you're in love with your wife, you're in love with your wife, no matter what you're doing. That's called avibhicharani. When you fall in love with that ultimate reality, your own self, that doesn't cease even while you're going about your business, doing whatever you got to do in this life. Vivikta Desha Sevi Tum. If you really want to get into this with no distractions, the best thing that Krishna says to do is retire to a quiet place. Find yourself a quiet place. In the Bhashya, in the commentary, Krishna says, uh, or Shankar says, solitary place. In the expression, resort to a solitary place, refers to spots like forests, riverbanks, the side of a temple, or those places naturally free or rendered free from unwelcome intruders like serpents, thieves, or tigers. <laughs> you can go to a quiet place, but make sure there's no tigers around. <laughs> Good advice in the 8th century. He was writing this in the 8th century. Swami Bodhicharananda is a place where leopards, snakes, these poisonous snakes, just all sorts of wild creatures, thieves, a couple they, of thieves. They destroyed his, his place one time. Is that where he lives? Yeah, nine months a year. Well, Shankar says don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> so you go. Now, for people like us, we're not going to go live in a cave or some forest somewhere. So, what's a secluded place for us? Make a room in your house that you can go into and shut the door. You make yourself a little puja there. You put up a picture of something so that... And yeah, something holy, something spiritual. And that's your evicted, that's your secluded place. That's enough. And how long are you going to stay there? You can't stay there very long. But whatever you can do, that'll have to be enough for you. Yitabalaha. Gaudapada says, according to your capacity, everybody's not going to be able to do all of these things. I once said to, there's 24 things I think listed here, and I went to my guru once, I said, how am I ever going to get these 24 things? It's impossible, Swamiji, I can't, it's not even in the, he says, you don't have to get all 24. If you get just one of them, if you just get one of them, all the others are included. 
achievements. That's the same. He's listing all of these. Get one of them. That attitude of not wanting to hurt any living being will spiritualize your life. Ahimsa. Dispassion to the objects of the senses. If you get that, everything else will fall in line. Once that happens, you won't care about what other people think about you, so humility will be natural to you. You don't have to try to get all of them. Get one. And the final thing in the 11th shloka is Adhyatma Jnana Nityatvam. This, this knowledge of that inner self, that Chetragnya, that you've had by studying Vedanta, by sitting at the feet of some teacher who pointed this truth out to you, that Adhyatma, that inner self, the knowledge of that Nitya, always absorbed, always revolving in your mind, that's the thing that I want, that inner self that's always with me. It's always there. He's always available. At any time, when you go to bed tonight and put that sheet over your head, it's there. When you're walking on your way to the class, it's there. It's never away from you. So it's always available. Having your mind on that, always. Nitya means nitya. It doesn't mean only in the morning for two hours and the night for two hours. This has to become throughout the day, throughout as much as you can. That's called Adhyatma Jnana Nityatvam. And the fruit of all of this is you'll finally get Tattva Jnana Artha Darshanam. You'll see directly the Tattva Jnana, the knowledge of the truth of the inner self. All of these are the Jnana Sadhanas and they lead to darshana. Without these sadhanas, you will not be able to get it. People may think, oh, I don't need any of this stuff, humility, all of that. All I have to do is just realize I'm the witness. You'll never be able to do it. It'll just be an intellectual conviction. It'll have no, not much value at all. So those are the qualities. I mentioned in the beginning of this, uh, when we got together in the Brahma Sutras, the fourfold qualifications. All through the Bhashya, in the Upanishads, in the Brahma Sutras, Shankara refers to 13, 11, 7 through 11, over and over. So if you really want to know what the real spiritual sadhanas are, this is it. Humility, the very first he mentions. Because without humility, that ego will take you in places you don't want to go. All right, I'm not going to say more about the qualifications other than to say that at the end of this, Shankara explains this in his commentary, what this last 11 sloka is. The translation here is horrible. I don't even want to read it, but... It gives you some idea, so I will read it. Unfailing cultivation of spiritual knowledge. That's called Adhyatma Jnana Nityatvam. You, you missed the whole thing here, spiritual knowledge. Adhyatma Jnana, the knowledge of the inner self, the Shetranya, is Adhyatma Jnana. Unfailing cultivation means Nitya, always. 
This knowledge is the knowledge of the self, and con constancy in cultivating it is what's called nitya. What is born of a mature meditation on the means of knowledge, such as humility, etc., is the philosophical knowledge. Its content is liberation. That very last part, atmajnana, tatvajnana, artha darshanam, that is the culmination of all the sadhanas, is to see that thing directly, not intellectually, but through the spiritual faculty of the mind. We have to intuit this truth in our own experience, like the berry on the palm of your hand. And then he says, indeed, only when there is such meditation. No, that's wrong. There's no word meditation in this whole thing. I don't know what this guy is talking about. So let's just skip that. But the group of components from humility right up to tatvajnana artha darshanam is said to be knowledge because why is humility said to be knowledge? Why is control of senses said to be knowledge? Why? They are said to be knowledge because they promote the possibility of knowledge. Ignorance is what is other than this group and it is opposed to it. So the opposite of humility is a lack of humility. That is ignorance. Vanity instead of unostentatiousness. Violence instead of ahimsa, non-violence. Impatience instead of shantir, patience. The opposite qualities, arjavam, not being a hypocrite. That's a really tough one. That is because we want to put on a face to the world that's different than how we are. So the opposite of that is hypocrisy. That will lead to samsara, ignorance, crookedness, etc. Know these to constitute ignorance. Why? So that we can avoid them. We have to try to cultivate these qualities through effort. These are the qualities that the guru has with no effort at all. If you watch the teacher, he'll have all of these qualities and he's not even trying to do it. He's not trying to be humble. But we have to try to be humble because we know that we want to be proud of our achievements and the world should recognize us and tell us how great we are. So that's the importance of this. Vedanta is not an intellectual game. You have to be qualified and these are the qualifications necessary. So then, you remember he said, I'm going to tell you what is the Kshetra, and he told him. And he said, I'm also going to tell you what is the Kshetragnya. But he didn't tell us what the Kshetragnya yet is. He just said there's the Kshetra and the Kshetragnya, and he described the Kshetra, the field. And then he went into this business about the Jnana Sadhanas. 
seems like almost a disjunction from the continuation of thought. But here in the 12th shloka, he comes back to the theme. Shankara introdu introduces <coughs> this 12th chapter, this 12th shloka, with this introduction. He says, the question, you can read with me if you like, the question, what is to be known by the knowledge stated above, is answered in verse 13. What is it that we have to know by cultivating humility, control of the senses, control of the mind, seeing the defect in birth and death, old age and disease, etc., etc.? What is it? In 1312, we give the answer. Somebody makes an objection. A Shankara, are not humility and all of those things just restraints and observances, observing humility? observing control of the senses, observe. they don't bring about any knowledge. If you're humble, will you know the self? This is the objection. This is no means to knowledge. They're merely restraints and observances. By means of them, what ought to be known cannot be known because they're not means of knowledge. Suppose I want to know the harmonium. What's the means of knowledge to know the harmonium? My eyes. If I'm humble, no matter how humble I am, if I don't turn my head that way, will I ever know that there's a harmonium there? Humility never brings about knowledge. So how do you say that these are the jnana sadhana, the means to knowledge? They're not a means to knowledge. They're merely observances and restraints. How will they bring about any knowledge? That's the objection. Indeed, humility and so forth do not precisely determine any object. It is universally understood that the knowledge alone determines its, object, its objective content. Knowledge of one object does not lead to the object of something different from it. By the knowledge of a pot, fire is not grasped. And by the knowledge of what is humility, I don't get to know the self. So how do you say that these qualities lead to knowledge? Reply, this is no flaw, Eshanadosha. We have already pointed out that humility, etc., are called knowledge because they lead to knowledge and also because they cooperate with the direct cause of knowledge. What is the direct cause of knowledge? The guru telling the student who has all of these qualities, you are that. That sentence produces the knowledge. But if you don't have all of these preceding qualities, they're called sahakari sadhana, the sahakari sadhana svanyana, that without those, you can tell this person he is that, but he'll never be able to know I am that. It's only the person who has these qualities that the direct knowledge can arise. At least that's Krishna's opinion and that's Shankaracharya's opinion. Okay, so now the 12th chapter, the 12th shloka. The 12th shloka says, 
Let me read the Sanskrit. I'll translate it better than whatever he wrote here. Geyam yatat pravakshami yatyatva amritamashnute anadimat parabrahma nasat nasat uchite. Tat geyam, that thing that has to be known. Tat geyam, there's something that must be known. Tat geyam, what that is, yatat, that thing which has to be known. Pravakshami, Krishna says, the Supreme Lord, the omniscient being. When we read the Gita, wherever it says Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, you take it that this is coming directly from the guru of all the gurus. Krishna is the guru. Every guru had to turn to Krishna, that witnessing consciousness. He's speaking. He's the one who's teaching the Gita. You take it like that. Every, every chapter in this Gita, every shloka in this Gita, every phrase in this Gita, every word in this Gita, every syllable in this Gita, where it says, Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, you take it that it must be correct. And it's just my incapacity to understand what's being said that's the problem. But there must be the correct thing here because this is coming directly, sakshat, directly from Krishna himself. And he's saying, pravakshami, I will now tell you that thing which has to be known. And then he says, yatyatva, which, having known, amritamashnute, you will attain immortality. There's one thing, knowing which, you will attain immortality. And I'm going to tell you that right now, in this shloka. There's nothing higher than this teaching, and I'm going to tell you right now. Anadimat parambrahma nasat nasat uchite The thing that has to be known is that absolute Brahman. Anadimat parambrahma that supreme Brahman, who's anadi, has no beginning, that beginningless supreme Brahman, that's what has to be known. And what has he said to be? That I'm now going to tell you who that Brahman is? Nasat. It's not existent. Oh, it must be non-existent. Naasat. It's not non-existent. What kind of teaching is this? You said you're going to tell me the thing which knowing nothing remains to be known, and then you say it's not existent and it's not non-existent? Why don't you just tell me what it is? Don't tell me what it's not. Why does Krishna tell Arjuna, I'm going to tell you the thing he promises him right here, he's going to tell him that thing, the highest teaching, and he goes, nasat, naasat. It's not existent. That means everything that you can imagine that exists. My body, my mind, my senses, my ego, the world, time, space. All of that, it's not that. Nasat. Well, what's left? It must be non-existent. Sorry. Naasat. 
It's neither existent or non-existent. That's exactly the same thing as the Upanishadic teaching. This is the self. I am Atma. Sa-Atma. Neti-Neti. There's an Upanishad that says, this is the self, which is not this, not this. There is no higher teaching than not this, not this. That is the highest teaching of all Vedanta. If anybody could follow it, because do it yourself. Negate every single thing that you can think of, not existent. And then if you think, well, that relief, that remains only non-existence, then take that away. When you negate every single thing, existence and non-existence, see what remains. That's Anadimat Param Brahma. That is the beginningless Supreme Brahman. When you negate everything, there's one thing that you can't negate. It's the self, which is not this, not this. There is no higher teaching than not this, not this. That's the final teaching of Vedanta. That's the supreme teaching of Vedanta. It's not existence, it's not non-existence. That covers the whole realm of all empirical things. It can either exist or not exist. But Brahman is beyond existence and non-existence. It's the witness of both. When you remove all of that, you'll see that there's something that remains. It's your own self. That's the beginningless Supreme Brahman. Yourself. Try it. Remove everything. See if you can remove the consciousness in which you're removing everything. Think it away. Try to think it away. There's no self. The witness that sees that thought, there's no self. That's the thing that can't be negated. You can't know it as an object. But you don't need to know it as an object. Why? The self is self-revealed. It's self-evident. It doesn't need anything to make it known. You just remove everything and there it is, self-revealed, self-established. There's no way of describing it through any word. There's no concept that conceive of it. But when you negate every word and every concept, that's it. That's the self. You don't have to make it manifest. It's always shining. Just negate everything that it's not. And what remains? That's the Anadimat Param Brahma, the beginningless Supreme Brahman. Nasat, Nasat Uchite. take a look at the commentary here. This verse is so important to understand. If you've understood this, you've really understood something very, very important in Vedanta. Why, even though no word can describe this, no concept can conceive of it, 
Yatvacho Anavartante, that from which all words return. Manasa Saha, along with the mind. The mind can't reach it. Whatever the mind thinks of is not it. But when you remove everything, including the mind, that's the way, because it's self-revealed. It doesn't need anything to light it up. It's self-lit. It's Svayam Jyoti. It's the light that lights up everything. It doesn't need another light to light it up. It's in the light of the self that everything is appearing. Existence and non-existence is appearing in that light. So when you remove everything that's appearing, nasat, nasat, neti, neti, not this, not this, there's one thing that remains that can't be described by words. There's no other way to indicate it except through the negation of what it's not, through the negation of the phenomenal manifold. You have to negate everything that's appearing. And when you negate every single concept, every single object, every single thing you can think of, everything that every word can describe, when you negate all of that, tatvamasi, that's who you are. You are the self who is not this, not this. There is no higher teaching than not this, not this. Shankar says in his commentary on this, how long does this commentary go for? It's quite extensive. Not too bad. The knowable, that which has to be known is called the gyam. The knowable is what has to be known. This is what we have to know. It's when we know this, that the ignorance, that mithya jnana, that misconception will finally come to an end. When that gyam, that thing that has to be known, when you know, I am that witnessing consciousness which is not this, not this. When you know that, that's what has to be known. When you know that, the ignorance will be gone. You realize, I am that. I never had any ignorance. I was never bound. There's nothing other than me. I am the only reality. I never change. Anything that appears has no existence apart from me. It's just an appearance. Nothing can exist without me, but I exist whether anything appears or not. I am the unchanging reality. If I'm the unchanging reality, that puts an end to the wrong misconception that I am this and this is mine. The samsara of I am this and this is mine comes to an end when you realize I am the self which is not this, not this. Then you become immortal. Knowing which, yatva amrita mashnute, you will attain immortality, Arjuna. Speaking over the shoulders of Arjuna to you, you will attain immortality. Just negate not existent, oh, non existent? Not non existent. That's the complete negation. And when you've negated every single thing, that which remains over, 
That's the self. There's no other way to teach it except through negation. There's no other way to know it because you can't objectify it. But when everything is negated, it's saying self-revealed. It's not that it's not revealed right now. Even while you're negating, it's lighting up the negation. It's not that it becomes manifest after you negate and it's not manifest when things appearing. It's the light that's always shining. The self is never hidden. But because I've identified it with the not-self, it seems as though it's not shining. So in order to make it shine in its own nature, we have to negate everything that it's not. Here Krishna is doing that. He promised Arjuna, I'm going to tell you that thing, if you know this Arjuna, you're going to attain immortality. That's what you really want. Because I don't know if you remember, in the beginning of the Gita, he says, I want Shreyas. You give me Shreyas. I'm your student. Give me Shreyas. Does anyone know what Shreyas is? It was every, all the time good is good. It was every time good. In the Kata Upanishad, Nechiketas and Yama, he says, do you want Preyas? That's worldly happiness. Or do you want Shreyas? the happiness that has no beginning and no end. The Lord Yama tells to Nechiketas, I'm going to give you women. I'm going to give you castles. I'm going to give you anything you want. It's kind of like uh, the thousand cows with the, the gold. And Nechiketas says, no, you keep that. I want to know, does the self continue after the body dies. Some people say it does, some people say it doesn't. I want to know that. And Yama looks at him and says, you are the candidate for this because you didn't want prayers. You wanted Shreyas. The same word in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, you give me Shreyas. Shreyas is immortality. And here Krishna is telling him, I'm now going to tell you that thing which knowing you will attain Shreyas, immortality. Anadimat Param Brahma. It is that beginningless Supreme Brahman. What's that? Nasat, not existent. Naasat, not non existent. You can't say it's existent, you can't say it's non existent because it's not a thing, it's not in time. It's inconceivable, but it's ever-shining, self-revealed. Just negate everything that it's not, and it stands in its own true form. I shall set forth truly and clearly to you that thing which has to be known. In order to arouse the attention of the listener, the fruit of such knowledge is indicated. That knowable, that thing that has to be known, is that by grasping which one attains immortality. The moment you know that you are that, you are immortal. 
It only takes knowing it. When you know the fact that I am that, then you are immortal, because that is not in time. You are the witness of time. You're the witness of the absence of time. You can't be in time. Time is Shetra. Time appears in the waking state, waking time. Dream appears in the dream state, dream time. In deep sleep, does any time appear? So time is Shetra. The witness is not in time. That's why it's immortal, Amrita. That, no, that noble is that by grasping which one attains immortality. There is no more death for the knower of it. There is no more death for the knower of it. Did Shankaracharya die? Can anybody tell me? Yes, in Kedarnath. Sorry? In Kedarnath, they say. He died in Kedarnath, so he didn't attain immortality. Probably. Probably not. Or probably yes. Who knows? Depends on the, on the point of view. That's correct. If, if Shankara was a person who wrote a book and went to Kedarnath, he died. But if Shankara is the supreme reality, which he is, that's my Shankara, he never died. He's myself. The knowable is that by grasping which one attains immortality. There is no more death for the knower of it. That which has no origin is the supreme. That is Brahman. That is the theme of the whole discussion. In this context, and now there's a discussion that I won't get into here. You can skip that part. Just the end part of the commentary before the 13th sloka, 12.4. He says, Reason supports the view that Brahman cannot be expressed in terms like existence or non-existence. All words used in a discourse are meant to convey a particular sense to the listener by means of their link with notions all words either refer to class, cows. Acts, the cow is running. Attributes, it's a blue cow. And relation, the cow is being milked by the man. Words can function like that. There is no other means to convey sense except through the, this conventional link. For example, the terms like cow and horse convey the sense through their link with a genre. Terms like cooks and reeds via activities. White and black are qualities. But Brahman has no genus, so it cannot be denoted by words like existence, nor does it have any attributes, so it can't be described as blue or black or yellow or or pink, or, or any color, or any size, or any shape. And again, it cannot be expressed by any verb, because Brahman has no activity, 
It doesn't act, it doesn't move, it doesn't waver. It, there's no verb that can describe it. It is actionless. It is pathless. It is without action. It is unrelated. So words of relation like brother or father means there's a son. But Brahman is not related to anything. So words of relation cannot apply to it. For it is only one. For it is one only. Being non-dual, not an object, and spiritual, it is appropriate that all words should fail to describe it. Hence the Shruti. The Shruti means, does anyone know what Shruti means? Shruti means the Upanishads, that which has been heard. It's the Shruti. That's the highest authority. And the Shruti says, that from which all words return, having failed to reach. He's quoting that verse from the Taitreya Upanishad. Whence words recoil, from which all words fall back. Yat vacho nivartante Taitreya 2199. Being beyond the range of words, such as sat or existence, or asat, non-existence, there arises a doubt that maybe this thing, if it's not existent, then it's not non-existent, and maybe it's totally non-existent. Right? You've negated everything. So Brahman must be totally non-existent. There's a doubt about that. It could be totally non-existent. In order to remove this doubt, its existence is affirmed as borne out by the sense organs and the adjuncts of living beings. Sarvatapani, the 13th verse, says, It has hands and feet on all sides. On all sides it has eyes and heads and mouths. It has ears on all sides. Here in this world, it stands encompassing all beings. So what is this business? First, Krishna says, I'm going to tell you what that thing is, knowing which you will attain immortality. And he goes, not this, not this. Nasat, nasat. And he negates everything. But then in the 13th verse, he says, it has hands and feet everywhere. It has ears and mouths and heads everywhere. If it's not this, not this, how can it have hands and feet everywhere? Krishna must be confused. He's contradicting himself. This description just goes against what was just said. That this thing has no qualities. How can it have hands and feet? How can it have a mouth and ears? How can it encompass everything when it's not this, not this? What kind of business is this? W 
We'll just take a quick look at the beginning of the commentary on this. That knowable, that gayum, the thing that has to be known, which he promised that he was going to tell him, which he, when he knows that thing, he'll attain immortality. That knowable thing, which he said was not existent and not non-existent, that knowable has hands and feet on all sides. The existence of the field Noah, the witness, the Kshetranya, is apprehended by the sense organs, the adjuncts of all living beings. I'm going to ask everybody a question here, which is, how do you know that you're the witness? How do you know that you are the knower of the field? Is it because the field is appearing that you know that you're the knower of the field? How do you know that you're the witness? It's because there's something witnessed. Only because there's something witnessed do you know that you're the witness. In deep sleep, is there anything witnessed? And you don't know that you're a witness. Only when something appears, you become the Shetranya. So you don't know the witness directly. You only know it because there's something witnessed. It's just an inference. You don't know it directly. People think, oh, I know the witness directly. But you don't. You only know the witness because there's the witness. If there was no witnessed, would you know you're the witness? So it's not direct knowledge. The existence of the field knower is apprehended <coughs> by the sense organs and the adjuncts of all living beings. What that means is the totality of this whole waking state is the Shetra. And that's what's called the adjunct. It's through that, because the waking appears, I know I'm the witness. Because the dream appears, I know I'm the witness. If there was nothing appearing, I wouldn't know or think that I'm a witness. So my knowledge of the witness is dependent on something else. I don't know it directly. Because you can't know the witness directly. You only know it indirectly. It's just an inference. It's not direct knowledge. The field is very variously pluralized due to hands and feet, etc. The multiplicity of the particulars due to the plurality of the adjuncts, like all the bodies that are appearing, is unreal regarding the field knower. And the reason that everything that's appearing, all these adjuncts, why are they unreal? We had the right answer, because they appear and disappear. They're changing. They come and they go. They're seen. They're an object. They can't be real. Therefore, its status as the knowable was affirmed through the abolition of the unreal. By negating everything that's not, uh, that is unreal, because you really can't negate something that's real. 
merely by saying, not this, not this, if the world was real, if this harmonium is real, if I go, not this, not this, <laughs> the harmonium's still there. If I look at the snake, that I, if the rope that I mistook as a snake, and I say, not this, not this, negate it, I can negate it. Why? Because it's not real. Then you can negate it. If there really was a snake there, merely by saying, not this, not this, you couldn't remove it at all. But because there is a reality there, you can say, not this, that snake, there's no snake there, it's a rope. But it's different with the self. You can only negate this, the false appearance. You can't point out it's a rope. But the beauty of the self is, unlike the rope that you have to see, you don't need anything to make the self known. It's always known. It's always shining. It's never hidden. So once you negate everything, unlike the example of the rope and the snake, if I negate the snake, then I have to know the rope because the rope is not self-revealed. I have to know it with my eyes or I can touch it with my hand. But the self, what do I need to know the self? Without the self, nothing could be known. But nothing is needed to know the self. All you have to do is remove everything that's been misconceived on it. The unreal appearance that has no reality apart from the self. Nothing can exist apart from the self. If you take the witness away, the witness cannot exist. But if you take the witness away, the witness is still there as the non-dual anadimat param brahma. It's not even a witness. You just called it a witness because of the witness. But when you negate all of the witness, what happens to the witness? It doesn't go away, but it's not a witness. It's pure consciousness. Chit, <coughs> without any object. It's existence, but not in time or space. It's pure bliss, because there's no second thing in it. I'm going to stop there. We're going to continue. If, what I'm going to recommend is, if you get a chance, try to read this portion of the commentary yourself. Because right here, Shankara tells us what is the method of Vedanta, in his own words. And then I'm going to try to explain it to you as we go on. So we have a few minutes left, and uh, let me open it up. Maybe there's some questions. This stuff was pretty heavy. <laughs> it's uh, not an easy thing. Um, and I'm laying a lot on you guys. And I hope you can follow kind of what I'm talking about. And maybe it brought up some questions. If it did, then I'm happy to discuss it. So, anybody have any questions? A wonderful class.
bunch of gnanis over here. <laughs> Have us some challenge, please. Tell me, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about. Something. Nothing? Okay. Well, in that case, we can leave a little early today. No questions? Yeah, do you mind just yeah. very quickly? Um, yes. So the final part, I mean, the final kind of grasping, the self is kind of grasping itself. It's like, it's not really who's going to grasp, my name's Renu, it's not Renu who's going to grasp itself. It's the self <coughs> is going to intuit, it's an intuit, it's an intuition, isn't it? It's an intuitive thing. So it's using what Renu's awareness as a reflection. Is that what... What is the process, in a sense, the final grasping? When the mind is, you know, you said the mind goes inwards and then it sees the self. So it, is it like a reflection? It, Did you hear what she's saying? So when the mind, remember I was saying the mind has to go inwards and then you can see the self? Can it really see no. the self? No. no. It's an intuition, it's a grasping. What do you think? So no. we said if the mind, even if the mind turns inward, it can't see the self, right? Mm -hmm. So then how do we know that we're the witness? Please. Mm -hmm. I'd be saying when, when the mind is outwards, it's grasping to objects. When it's not grasping to objects anymore, it's inward driven. What's left is pretty much the nature, the kind of awareness that's just there. Like so it gets obvious. When the mind turns inward means that it's rejected the outside, it's rejected the body, the senses, the intellect, it's resent it's 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 negated even the mind. When you negate every single thing, then that thing that can't be negated, what do you need to make that known? Is there something more, or does the self reveal itself by itself? By itself. There's no need to use the mind. The mind can't know it. But when you negate everything, including the mind, nasat, the mind exists, take it away. Non-existence, the opposite of existence, take it away. Then the self which is always shining, never hidden, stands self-revealed. It doesn't have to be known as an object because it's the eternal subject that can never be objectified. We intuit it as the unknown subject. I know myself as unknowable. I see myself as unseeable. I realize myself as unrealizable. I am the subject that can never be an object. Nobody can think of it, but I'm the witness of all thoughts. The way the Upanishad says it is like this. That which can't be known by the mind, but that by which the mind itself is said to be known. Know that to be Atman, and not what they meditate on as this. Whatever you're aware of is not the Atman. Whatever the mind thinks of is not the Atman. The mind can't know it. But what is it that knows the mind? 
That is the Atman. You don't need anything to make that known. It's self-known. It's the only thing that does it. Without that shining, nothing shines. It lights up the lightness, it lights up the darkness. Beyond light and dark. It lights up the day, it lights up the night. But nothing lights it up. It's the eternal light that doesn't need anything to light it up. The witness doesn't need another witness to witness the witness. Then you need another witness to witness that. The witness is self-revealed. Remove everything, you'll see. He's, that's the nature of the self. Nothing needs to be done to make it known. You just have to remove all the misconceptions. When the, everything is gone, including the mind, the self stands self-revealed. Self-revealed to who? All you can say is to the self. But it's not actually correct. We can say, oh, the self knows itself by itself. There are, there are sentences in the Gita like that. Then the self knows itself by itself. You've heard that expression? But think about it. Can the self know itself no. by itself? What does it mean? Shankar says in Upadesha Sahasri, when we negate everything, we remain as that true self. That's all that we can do. But then the thought comes up, that thought comes up, I am Brahman. That thought is metaphorically called the knowledge of the self. You're the witness of that thought. It hasn't objectified it. But when that thought arises, aham brahmasmi, that's called upacharita, metaphorically, not really, but in a metaphorical way, that thought that arises is the intuition of the self. We directly intuit it with no means necessary, and then the thought arises, I am that. That thought is also just a thought in consciousness, but this thought is knowledge. The other thought, I am Ira, gets negated. I am that. They're both false. I am that is not real. I am not that is not real. But that thought is called the knowledge of the self. When you've negated everything and the self is only remaining, that thought, I am Brahman, is called the intuition of the self. Why is it called intuition? Because we don't experience it. It's not like something outside. We intuit it. It comes from within us. And then the thought arises, I am that. That thought hasn't objectified the witness. But that thought is metaphorically called the knowledge of the self. That thought has to cancel the other thought I'm a suki duki samsari. I was born getting old and sick and dying. It's wrong. This thought has to cancel that. This is ignorance. This is knowledge. I am Brahman, eternal, immortal, beyond time and space.
That's called Atmagyana. That's called the knowledge of the self. We have to intuit it. When everything is negated, in the Mandukya Upanishad, the seventh mantra says, not aware of the inside, that means dream. Not aware of the outside, that means waking. Not aware of both, that means waking and dream. Not aware of anything, not unaware of anything. It just keeps negating, negating, and then it says, Sa-atma, that is the self. It's not the witness of anything. Sa-atma, sa-vignaya, that is the self that has to be known. That last word, has to be known, is a deliberate superimposition, because it can't be known. You are the self which can never be objectified. The eternal knower. The scripture says the knower of knowing can't be known. But it doesn't have to be known. Why? It's the only thing that self revealed. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Let's end the class. Oh, sorry. The negating that you've been talking about, and then also the thought, I am that right, Aham Brahmasmi. Those thoughts happen in the mind, though. Right? Absolutely. So, but the self basically always was revealed. It was never... So the process that you're talking about is a process in the mind. The mind has to, the self doesn't negate. You have to negate. Yeah. It's not exactly like I was saying because in fact the final negation has to be by the guru. Because even though we've negated everything, you won't know that you're that. You'll still want to know because the whole investigation was to find out who am I? So you're still looking. And so when you go negate every single thing, even, okay, I'm not my ego, then who am I? Then the guru. Because you still want to know. You can't know. You'll never know. The self can't be known. The whole thing was this deliberate superimposition for the purpose of teaching that you have to know the self. You don't have to know the self. You can't know the self. No one ever knew the self. Why? And the self is the only reality. There's no knower and known. The self can't know itself because there's not two parts in it. One part the knower, the other part the known. The self is just undivided, pure bliss. Think about it. Let's do the Purnamada, we'll call it the class.
So there's a class this evening at yeah. 9.05, yeah? Yes. Okay.